What are cryptocurrencies? Hey, hey, hey. What are NFTs? A non-fungible token. Time to buy Bitcoin. Bitcoin just seems like a scam. What's up, what's up, what's up, what's up, what's up? Bitcoin! All right, hello, welcome. Uh, we are uh, excited to, to bring a new episode of uh, On The Ledger uh, to you. We have a great panel today. Uh, my name is Seth Hartline. I lead global policy at Ledger uh, and uh, very excited to um, bring together some, some true experts on a very important issue for the, the crypto ecosystem. Uh, I'll start with Marissa Koppel. Uh, who is senior counsel at the Blockchain Association, and uh, I know had the uh, uh, perhaps unenvious position of uh, uh, drafting and, and, and overseeing the Blockchain Association's comment letter uh, to uh, Treasury and the IRS uh, on uh, the IRS broker rule, which we'll be talking about today. Uh, we also have uh, Bill Hughes, uh, Senior Counsel and Director of Global Regulatory Matters at Consensus, and Will Paul, Public Policy Lead at Block, uh, focusing on uh, the BitKey, Block's um, uh, upcoming uh, self-custody wallet. Um, so uh, with that uh, introduction, I'll, I'll give a little bit of background um, and, and we'll just we'll just get right into this because uh, there's there's a lot to cover. Uh, so in uh, at the at the very end of August, uh, the Treasury and IRS released a joint uh, uh, rule proposal uh, uh, implementing a, a legislative text change that was adopted uh, almost exactly two years prior as part of the uh, Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act that changed the definition of broker for tax purposes. Um, and uh, while that legislation passed, uh, it, it was really on hold until Treasury put forth uh, a rule package to, to implement it. And so uh, it really wasn't until a few months ago that we had any sense of sort of the impact that it would have. And uh, I'll, just, uh, I'll just TLDR this for everyone. It's, it's not good. Uh, and, and we'll talk about the, the specifics of, of why that is. Uh, but just to set the stage, uh, I want to talk uh, a little bit about the, the change itself, and then we'll get into some questions um, with the panel. Is that, that okay for everyone here? Yeah. Good? Okay. Um, so I think the, the, the first panel, or the first question that I want to dive into is just sort of, what is this new definition, right? So um, in the tax code, we've known what a broker means for a long time. Um, and it used to be fairly harmonized where a broker for tax purposes meant essentially what you thought it meant. Uh, it meant uh, a, a securities broker, more or less. Um, uh, it was a financial intermediary that uh, assisted customers in buying and selling securities. Uh, it could be other property as well, but, but generally speaking, it was, uh, it was securities. Uh, that has now sort of changed and diverged. Uh, and, and with this rule proposal, uh, Treasury and the IRS are seeking to uh, sort of drastically expand the definition of, of broker uh, beyond the securities broker context. And they do this in a, in a, fairly, a fairly tortured way, but it, it gets to a very expansive result. So uh, the first thing that I want to talk about before we turn things over to the panel is just, you know, what is this new definition of broker uh, for uh, for tax purposes uh, with respect to digital assets. Um, it starts by saying a uh, broker is any 
any person, U.S. or foreign, that in the ordinary course of a trade or business stands ready to affect, and that's the key word, uh, sales of digital assets to be made by others. Uh, affect, uh, which, uh, which comes from the, the, the legislative text, the statutory definition, um, uh, Treasury and IRS are proposing uh, to define effect uh, as uh, basically the existing definition with a new sub um, that, that includes a digital asset middleman. So a, a digital asset middleman uh, uh, is, is a person who uh, affects a sale. Um, by providing uh, well, a new, another defined term, a facilitative service, uh, right? So a digital asset middleman is someone that facilitates a transaction in digital assets. Treasury and IRS then define f uh, facilitative service uh, as, uh, or, or, or a middleman as someone who would be in a position to know uh, both the identity of the party that makes a sale and the nature of the transaction giving rise to gross proceeds from the sale. Uh, and then it, it continues to define uh, someone in a, uh, uh, in a position to know the identity um, and, a, and in a position to know the nature of a transaction, basically as anyone who has a, uh, the ability to change the fees charged for the facilitative service, right? So we're, we're getting really, really broad now. You know, this could be software developers, um, you know, writing code, uh, you know, any number of things, right? So, so the relationship between a, a middleman uh, providing a facilitative service and an end customer is now, you know, now can be several steps removed. Um, and, and sort of each sub-definition uh, that gets to uh, affect uh, makes it more general and broader in, in application. Uh, a facilitative service uh, can include um, you know, simply providing access to uh, a, you know a broker that that executes a trade or or, or a trading platform, or uh, even just providing service to discover prices. Um, you know, so so you know something like a like a, a bulletin board that that shows prices, or um, yeah, you know something as simple as uh, you know a, a website that tracks prices could be a facilitative service under this definition. Um, you know, which is now sort of starting to get, uh, you know, into the absurd. Um, and, uh, you know, so, so that's sort of how, how Treasury uh, opens this up to capture sort of as much of the digital asset landscape uh, as possible. In, in the proposing release, they even suggested that simply advertising for a transactional service could be enough to make you a middleman and thus a broker. And uh, so I'm going to turn uh, turn to the panel uh, to talk about the implications of this. Um, uh, but but first, I'll give it just a quick sort of legislative history of, of how we got here. So summer of 2021, uh, the U.S. Senate was developing a uh, an, an infrastructure bill uh, to invest. Uh, the goal was to invest uh uh, I, I believe a trillion dollars into U.S. infrastructure over a, a period of ten years or so, uh, and they needed to come up with pay-fors. Uh, right, this is a common exercise in Congress where if they want to spend, out uh, uh, of one hand, they need to come up with ways to pay for that spending somewhere else. Uh, and so, someone uh, decided that uh, that crypto could be a good pay-for, 
And, uh, you know, the belief was that there was sort of rampant tax evasion going on in the crypto sector. Um, and so this, uh, this provision that was added uh, really at the 11th hour of, of the negotiations of the infrastructure bill um, sought to sort of close a perceived tax, uh, tax loophole um, and thus increase tax revenue by capturing more digital asset transactions um, with, a, with a sort of automatic reporting uh, regime. And uh, uh, it was written very broadly, um, introduced very late in the process, uh, and a number of, of sort of champions for digital assets in the Senate, including Senators Toomey, uh, Lummis, Wyden, um, Cruz, and some others, uh, mounted uh, a, a defense, uh, an attempt to, to change uh, the language with uh, an amendment that would state clearly that it would, does not apply to software developers, to, to uh, wallets, and to miners and validators. Basically, the, 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 the uh, participants in the digital asset ecosystem that don't have access to the types of information that would be useful to the IRS anyway. Unfortunately, for sort of silly political reasons, uh, uh, that amendment died on the Senate floor. Uh, it, it actually was offered and, and killed uh, three times in, in sort of rapid succession over a silly reason. Um, but that was the result, right? So the language passed uh, as proposed um, and, uh, you know, and then required the, the Treasury and IRS to, to start a rulemaking process to implement it. And so that's, um, that's sort of how we got to where we are today. Um, so the first question uh, I want to pose, uh, well, I guess the first thing I'd say is, um, did I leave out anything important? Uh, esteemed panel. That was pretty thorough. Well, so uh, as part of the rulemaking process, um, Treasury and the IRS released their proposal and they opened it up for public comment. Uh, the comment period closed uh, on the 13th, uh, so at the end of last week. And I know each one of you submitted uh, uh, excellent comment letters uh, in response, but maybe from sort of slightly different angles. And so one of the ways that I, I'd like to kick off the conversation is to just ask each one of you, you know, what are the top couple asks uh, of Treasury and the IRS uh, that, that you included in your comment letters uh, and that you'd like to highlight for the audience today? I'm happy to go for it. So so for some background, what we did uh, here at Block is we did a couple of things. So we submitted a, a wider comment letter on behalf of Block covering Cash App and Square, we worked through our trade association, oh, no. the Council for Innovation. Um, and then we also did our self-hosted wallet letter, which is the kind of main focus for me. And we focused, kind of, with that letter, we focused through 13 different companies, so including Ledger, uh, Contensies. Uh, we had a number of exchanges sign on too. And what that was trying to do was get together a kind of coalition of what I called the self-hosted uh, wallet ecosystem. So people who either provide uh, self-hosted wallets or engage them on a daily basis to kind of provide the ba the background and basis for uh, for what that for, for what those do and, and why they shouldn't be included, and our letter kind of had I would say one direct clear ask and two indirect asks. So we had a very clear ask, which is frankly, wallets should be exempt from the reporting requirements, and that's because they do not, as Seth was saying earlier, effectuate transactions. They're not directly involved in brokering a transaction or involved as a counterparty to the relevant transaction for the taxation purposes. So we asked for them to be excluded and for only those who directly effectuate to be covered. So what we had was two further indirect asks. Um, the first of which was just for self-hosted wallets to be frankly understood properly. The regulations as written didn't really understand what wallets did, what their purpose was or how they worked. 
And so we were asked uh, by kind of setting out quite an extensive explanation of, of the wallet uh, and what they kind of do was for those to be protected and for rules to be based on facts, not kind of a belief of how they should work. So it's protecting that innovation. And a kind of second error is to ensure that when we're focusing on protecting taxpayer information, uh, we do not kind of extend taxpayer information to entities who don't need to, don't need to have it and can't report it anyway. So as you know, wallets do not collect KYC information. And what the regulation wanted to do was for wallets and frankly, lots of providers to have all of this information in many different spots. We argued that created a honeypot where many kind of bad actors would have an opportunity to potentially steal or hack those and would harm uh, American taxpayers' sense of information. So it was kind of directly was excluding wallets and indirectly was asking the IRS to firstly understand what wallets do and kind of have a real understanding of how they can and should be included in rules or not included. And secondly, to think really carefully about the privacy and data risks that come along with these rules. Thanks, Will. I know, uh, you know, I was, uh, I, I worked with you on, on, on the letter and was very happy uh, to, to, to add Ledger uh, as, as one of the signers. And, you know, hopefully some of that, uh, you know, just very basic education uh, is, uh, you know, is, is important to improving the, the, the process and the result overall. Um, Marissa, what about you? What were, what were some of BA's major, major asks? Yeah, sure. So our letter was a little bit different in that the Blockchain Association is a trade association and we have over 100 different members. So our letter was very broad. Um, I would say about half the letter talked about how the rule or the proposal would apply to centralized, you know, custodial intermediaries who would ordinarily fall within the definition of a broker. And then the other half of the letter talked about how it applied to DeFi and also non-custodial wallet software developers. Um, so I definitely know that, you know, we echo the concerns that Will raised and also that Bill raised that I'm sure he'll get into detail on in a minute. But I guess the top three asks, one was that the definition of broker should be limited to centralized custodial intermediaries, basically like traditional middlemen in the how we historically think about middlemen. Like um, crypto exchanges. Yes. Yeah. Custodial crypto, like centralized custodial exchanges. Um, and then another ask was that it should not apply to non-custodial wallets, um, you know, for the reasons Will described. And then we also, and this fell within the uh, centralized exchange portion, but we asked for uh, the rule to not apply to NFTs or stable coins, um, like payment stable coins. So those, I, I think, are the top three, although our letter was 35 pages, so there, were, there was a lot in there. <laughs> <laughs> there. There were a few more than three asks, probably. <laughs> Bill, close us out here. Sure. As a general ask, we just told them to be very careful and deliberate in coming up with the final rule. It took two years to come together with the proposed rule. And um, I think the industry is going to put a lot of very important, very tricky substantive policy issues, many of them which are new in front of the Treasury, and they should be just as deliberate and um, methodical in coming up with the final rule as they need to be. Uh, there's great peril in uh, this rulemaking and uh, uh, in terms of its effect on uh, the blockchain software developer community in the United States. And the way to avoid that is to go back, as as others have indicated, um, to what Congress was actually trying to do, and that is um, make a level playing field between um, traditional finance and sort of the centralized uh, crypto 
finance world. Um, so you don't have to serve an exchange like Kraken um, with a subpoena for a John Doe subpoena for um, for tax records and then have them fight you in court on it. You have a you have a statutory obligation to provide it, avoiding all that. That makes a lot of sense. And that's uh, that's really good for users as well, for most users who um, would like a 1099 in their mailbox every year to help them um, understand what their capital gains um, is. This rule went beyond that and does so uh, for a number of untenable in a no, number of untenable ways that we think just as a, a statutory interpretation matters uh, probably invalid and so they should avoid those legal problems avoid the practical problems by going back and focusing on um, focusing the regulation on those parties that that actually do need to be regulated um, with respect to tax reporting we also made a number of um, suggestions with respect to how the rule could be improved. Uh, one is um, if, it, if they do go forward and, and apply it to software developers uh, in the DeFi stack, like they have to prioritize and indicate um, some way for multiple parties not to have to report all on the same transactions. These are called multiple broker rules. They're very important for users and the IRS to avoid uh, many uh, duplicative and sometimes inconsistent um, transaction reports, uh, which makes the the task of actually understanding what taxes are to be owed um, much harder than it does uh, make it easier. Um, on stable coins, we said when they're used in ordinary commerce um, and the, the peg really hasn't deviated at all, there, there should be no taxable event regardless um, even if it's if you could theoretically have one on the margin. That said, if there's actually explicit trading activity in stablecoins, um, whether this is just taking advantages of arbitrages or uh, something actually depegs and you're looking to buy it low, thinking it's going to go back to to its targeted peg, if it's that smacks more of actual investment activity, and so in such instances, there there should be some sort of General exception, but but inclusion for actual explicit investment activity with respect to stablecoins, and we have, um, you know, certainly seen uh, in instances in which such activity has happened, and it's completely legitimate to ask for it in such circumstances, and specifically um, of certain entities that essentially would facilitate directly such trading. The last thing with NFTs. I actually went in and talked to the IRS before the uh, the comments were due, and my conversation with them on NFTs happened in this way. I raised it, expressing my concern. Uh, the official who essentially drafted that section of it um, confessed uh, her belief that the way she had posed it, meaning all NFTs under any circumstances should be uh, reported on for uh, capital gains purposes, would be the preference of industry because it wouldn't require us to make distinctions <laughs> between different types of NFTs in different types of situations. We could all just have the same approach across the board. One of, one of two things. One, even in that meeting, considering the issue at the end of a 90-minute discussion when we were about to walk out the door, they seemed very... 
interested in, in new ideas about how to address the problem. Maybe certain types of activity relating to NFTs would be subject to the broker reporting uh, rule rather than specific types of NFTs. The second thing I think it's indicative of is that there's this, there, it, it depends a little on the issue, but there is still, uh, it seems a very steep learning curve with respect to um, the impacts that this would have on software development, which is why consensus and others um, put so much time and effort into putting our um, comment in. The only, and not to belabor it, but the last thing I say is that we, we, we went in depth on the, the burdens associated with actually complying for a software company. We're a fairly, you know, well-to-do software company, all things considered, and it'd be extraordinarily burdensome, like tens and tens and tens of millions of dollars, hundreds of people working like for at least a year, probably two years to try to construct new processes and systems and, and all of that just to comply. And so um, we put a lot of time and effort in, into quantifying that because they seem very eager to get that information. I think it's going to dictate not only the substance of the rule, but the timeline on which it's put into play. Bill, it's interesting uh, your meeting that you had with them because I felt the same during the hearing. I testified at the hearing last Monday and the questions that they were asking definitely indicated that they like had not thought through the implications of NFTs um, and were open to changing that, which I thought was promising. And even like as applied to decentralized technology, I don't think they, like they asked me, for instance, you know, well, why can't a, uh, de why can't like DeFi comply? Like basically what is the difference between something that's decentralized and centralized? Yes. Well, they, they believe the line that secretly behind a curtain, right? there's somebody who actually controls it. Like one would control an application on their phone. Like all the settings are there, they toggle everything just so, and they're essentially engaged in this grotesque charade that actually they're not in charge. So it's it's like, if you viewed it as that being correct, you'd be like, well, clearly they're engaged in fraud. Like they're saying they're not in charge, they're clearly in charge. Now, we can all stipulate that there are more decentralized and less decentralized software protocols on the blockchain, but that said, the idea that this is just simply some alterations in the code that one one entity is like more than capable of doing and it's not very burdensome. I think that's just a mistake that has grown largely out of both the tech as being new and different. And two, a lot of people have been buying the, the, the purposefully um, misstating narrative that people... Um, elsewhere in the government have been um, trying to uh, trying to spin about the nature of this technology. And so to the extent that this, you know, hopefully educates people, um, you know, that that's a good that comes out of it into uh, initial signs, or at least show that, you know, just as you've indicated, at the worker bee level, there is there appears to be some openness to, to changes, whether the powers that be who are the ones really cracking the whip on moving this rule forward are going to be comfortable with that flexibility is harder to say. Can I add a comment on burdensome? I think that's totally right. It's not just for companies, but we know already the IRS is going to be extremely burdened by this. They came out, I think, two weeks ago and noted they were going to get 8 billion new returns as a result of this. 
And they said very clearly that I can't, one of their kind of senior people came out and said, we do not have a technology as of right now to be doing this. So it's totally companies and totally agree with Bill here. And we looked into it across the self-hosted wallet space and it's is, it is unmanageable for many of the smaller innovative companies uh, for what they'd be required to do. It'd be a fundamental rebuilding. But it's, really, it's, it's, it's the kind of burdens not only just for the IRS, but imagine we're going to send American taxpayers 8 billion new receipts, many of which will be duplicative and confusing. And they'll have to work through it and submit it and try to remediate it. Like, it's unbelievable in terms of the, the scope of stuff it's requiring folks to do at all levels. Uh, and I'm hoping that's going to come across and they'll kind of realize that. And the 8 billion is quite clearly too low, right? And maybe 8 billion at like bear market lows or like nobody's here levels. Especially if save payment stable coins are included too. You think about like a $1, you know, or $5 coffee or whatever. <laughs> well, so my, uh, I think this flows uh, perfectly into my next question, which was going to be about uh, discrimination uh, but as between, um, you know, digital asset, you know, brokers and, and, and traditional brokers. Um, and, you know, Bill, you touched on, I think, you know, one of the most sort of egregious cases of, of, of disparate treatment um, when you mentioned the, the multi-broker exception or exemption. Could you, uh, could you drill down a little bit more on that, uh, you know, for, for, for the audience to describe sort of how that works today for, for traditional brokers and, and how in the release uh, Treasury uh, recognized it and explicitly made it unavailable for digital asset brokers and some of the problems that will cause? Sure. Like, well, just said simply in traditional finance, <coughs> you may engage in a transaction. You're going to, there, there's a whole bunch of intermediaries that are executing the transaction on your behalf. You can't do it yourself. They all understand based on their relative functions, who's responsible for handing you at the end of the year, a piece of paper that shows the, the transaction and any capital gains you experience. You got off of it, what your cost basis was for the thing you sold. And the others know that it's not our responsibility for this trade. Uh, in DeFi, that doesn't exist. Um, the composability makes things um, much more difficult because, again, you're not necessarily one software developer doesn't know what uh, for any particular transaction necessarily what other third-party software is being used in conjunction with theirs for purposes of somebody just executing a transaction on their own. And so um, that is the first problem. Two, the second problem is some of the software is just out there in the ether, sitting there, not maintained, not monitored. Um, there's no permi permission structure where some gatekeeper is, uh, you know, checking out who you are, doing KYC to allow you, you to use it. It's there on chain. You have open source software that can see it and use it. And that's how DeFi works. Um, so IRS sees this problem. Um, and um, they say, well, uh, it's unclear to us. They would love, first of all, stipulation. They would love a multiple broker rule for DeFi. The problem is they don't know how to get one, and nor does anybody I could think of, um, where you're actually getting the reporting done. Um, the easy thing would be is saying, well, if let's just make the online, the software protocol, the smart contract protocol itself, 
the Uniswap give you that report? And if it can't or refuses to, all the other software developers don't have to. Um, that could be one way to do it, but the point is IRS doesn't get the reporting they want. So they are like, because we don't have faith that they will or we can make these smart contract swapping protocols, for example, actually give you a report. There are other people in the chain whose software you use to do that transaction. We're going to make them also. So somebody for every transaction, there's going to be somebody hopefully available who can report. And having multiple reports for a single transaction is better than just indicating one party is really responsible and just having them never report. So I understand the distinction between how they, it's just a practical distinction between the two systems, which is why it's treated differently. The problem is uh, the, the burdens, the confusion um, uh, are, don't justify taking this approach. And um, that's why, you know, the industry is rightfully rejecting uh, Treasury and IRS basically saying, we don't know what to do about it, so it's going to be your problem. Well, and there, it seems like there are, there are sort of compounding problems here uh, because they, they've written the definition of broker uh, so broadly, you know, through these sub-definitions of, of middleman and facilitative service and things, you know, to capture, uh, you know, things like, uh, and, and we may not even fully understand the extent of what's captured, but, you know, they mention things like advertisers, um, uh, you know, platforms that show price, you know, which could be a block explorer, um, you know, DeFi protocols, software developers, wallets, right? Uh, you know, all of these things, well, I guess what I should say, none of these things are the actual point at which a, a trade is executed, right? And so you could very quickly get six, seven, eight, you know, different brokers, um, you know, reporting the same, or at least having the obligation to report the same transaction, which Will gets to your point of how they how they you know estimate eight billion, which is probably uh, you know to the low side, um, the, you know the number of transactions. Um, but Will, can you speak to uh, you sort of the you know the impossibility for some of these captured um, uh, you know entities uh, to provide the types of information that's required on a ten ninety nine? Yeah, absolutely. So I think focusing on the self-hosted wallet element here, I think one way to think about it, and what we drew this analogy in our, in our joint letter, is to think about you know Google or Microsoft. They might provide you a branded laptop, a branded smartphone. They also provide the app stores or the search interfaces to find and access you know relevant financial service providers. They also might provide you the branded kind of storage device hard drive that customers use to hold passwords and kind of information offline, but they're recognized, and this is very similar to self-hosted wallets, but they don't have involvement or knowledge of a particular sale and they're therefore not required to report it. So I think it's, you know, it's a direct comparison to not only TradFi brokers, but also some of the TradFi technological kind of companies and what they're required to do. And for the self-hosted wallet space kind of in particular, I think there's, there's three aspects about why wallets, you know, are not the right people, not the right uh, kind of technologies to be uh, reporting, and why it'd be a miss. I think firstly, wallets don't undertake transactions. They they hold keys. They're a technological solution to make it easier for people to keep their keys safely and securely. This is a point also that the regulations acknowledge. 
it says that exact thing when it explains uh, what wallets are. It just goes on to apply this faulty logic through the digital asset middleman that somehow at the same time, only the user of a self-hosted wallet can actually effectuate their own transactions. But at the same time, a self-hosted wallet is a middleman because apparently the wallet is a broker that effectuates transactions on behalf of the user. The logic doesn't make sense by itself. So I think firstly, it's very difficult for wallets to do any reporting because they don't, they're not parties to the relevant transaction. I think secondly, wallets do not have the information required by the IRS. There's no insight from the wallet into what is being done with the asset. You know, we don't ask and there's no one is required to collect the information about what a user is sending for. If it is sending it to an exchange, uh, the kind of self-hosted wallet provider doesn't know what is happening on the exchange later along. The information is simply not collected and is not there. It's left the kind of keys have been used uh, by the user stored in their wallet. Um, but the wallet has no information about the actual transactions. And then finally, I think this is, for me, this really brought home the fact that I don't think the kind of regulations have understood the role of wallets and why we spent so long just talking about what they are, what they do, and importantly, what they don't do, was that brokers are required to do withholding, which is essentially uh, keeping back some of the kind of tax you'll be paying to ensure at the end of the year that tax, it, that tax is paid. Um, it kind of, you know, for wallets, they can't do that. It's presum presuming here that wallets are holding, you know, the coins off off the kind of off the ledger, to hold them in in the wallet itself, and therefore a company in theory can go in and kind of hold back some of the coins of value equivalent to the tax. That's just not true. The kind of digital assets don't leave the ledger in this situation. That's kind of the key point we tried to get across to the IRS was that wallets wallets do is they help you to safely and secure hold your keys. Then they're not a position to be. Um, holding kind of holding back coins or intervening in 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 kind of that purpose, and that's a fundamental misunderstanding. Um, it would require redesign of a wallet to the point where it would no longer be a wallet. It would be more like a custodial exchange and platform. Um, that may be the intention, but that's not what wallets do in this situation. So, I think for wallets specifically, it's the fact that they you know they don't even do the transaction. They can't see the transactions. And they, they don't hold the keys on, or they hold the coin, sorry, on behalf of the user and therefore can't do withholding. So those kind of three things were our, were our kind of big focus and why even if they wanted to comply, it would be extremely difficult, near technically uh, impossible for wallets to do so. Yeah, I think that's a, it's a great example of one of the, um, some of the cognitive dissonance within, within the release itself, um, you know, is, is in the preamble. Uh, the, you know, the text is sort of very careful to always refer to uh, custodial wallets, but then the definitions are written so broadly that they capture non-custodial wallets. And so it sort of says or purports to be applying to only custodial, but then in, in, in effect or, or in reality, it, it captures uh, non-custodial solutions as well. Um, so, you know, Will, you mentioned some of the, uh, you know, sort of, you know, actual you know, changes at the product level or technological changes that would be required to comply with a rule. Um, and I think that really comes about because of um, uh, the requirements for um, uh, a digital asset middleman being in a position to know, um, you know, either the identity or the, the nature of the transaction. Um, and, and then there's sort of a second, second level requirement that if you are in a position to know, uh, then basically you're required to know, even if you wouldn't otherwise. Um, so uh, I guess I, either Will or Bill, um, you know, 
what types of, of actual product level changes uh, would this uh, uh, would this rule proposal require for uh, you know, for for self-hosted wallets, for example? We actually looked at this pretty closely, and um, I'll give you the high level answer. Our position is for the MetaMask base wallet, just for its core self-hosted, you know, read and write to the blockchain, hold your keys functionality. It would change nothing. That's open source code. You can check it out on GitHub. We're not changing that. For all the services that we plug into the wallet that people can at their discretion use, it completely changes those. Right now, um, it's just software. You call on an API, it serves you information, you decide how to use it and uh, sign transactions with your own wallet. It would require us uh, to change those offerings to collect all a ton of information, but every single user wanting to use that feature um, keep that in a database, make sure it's updated um, on a regular basis to the extent it ever changes. And then um, we're going to have to build all these compliance uh, processes and repositories um, on the back end to actually execute the reporting function. So um, for each one of our services, anything where you as the user can dispose of a token, whether by swapping or staking or anything. When you um, relinquish control over a token, it could be considered a, a reportable event. And um, we did the math. It'd take, you know, literally scores and scores and scores of developers and product people and lawyers and accountants and everybody um, at least two years. So so the the reporting piece of it sounds like extremely difficult, extremely expensive, um, but, and but think about what it means. Like we don't need for you to run a MetaMask wallet. We don't need your email address. We don't need your home address. We don't need your social security number. We need all that to do the reporting. Yep. Um, and so there's no way to, um, preserve your privacy, um, and respect your privacy like we once did. Um, theoretically we could outsource all of this to some third party. Um, and still be responsible for it. But, you know, that's, again, you turning over all your private information. Um, and ultimately, we'd need to be giving you your forms via email, right? So we'd even need to know that. It's it's just a sea change with with what the software has always wanted to be. Yeah, and to add to that, it's just not, not just a wallet company. It's anyone who's kind of defined as a broker. So we go back to the point earlier around creating a series of repeated information collection of very personal sensitive data. And I think that's what worried us, uh, especially that like we know what wallets do is supposed to make actually working and you know holding your assets and using your assets safer and secure. It's supposed to prevent kind of that loss, prevent that kind of loss of, of personal identity. And actually what this does, is it just creates way more information held in way more entities. It's not kind of you know, via a single exchange who's gonna have certain procedures to keep it safe and secure. It encourages it would have to require everyone in that step they consider a broker to hold it in their own way and just kind of create those honeypots we we're talking about so definitely agree with bill i think the kind of requirements is extremely restrictive it, it kind of encouraged the kind of um it would encourage wallets to go back to a, a very single kind of focused core function without the benefits for users without the benefits of consumer protection and which i think achieve a lot of the policy goals in which we, which the kind of industries you're working for which is to make it easy accessible to look after your own assets protect your own assets and make sure people are kind of financially and economically empowered and included in the wider system. 
Yeah, I, I think that's a great point. You know, this is not like, you know, choosing a stockbroker that you're comfortable with, um, you know, maybe because it was the stockbroker your parents used or, or whatever, that you have a relationship with and, and, you know, feeling comfortable giving your social security number to that person, you know, because, uh, uh, you know, the definition is so broad and captures so many different types of participants. Um, and there is no availability of the multi-broker exemption. You have, you potentially would have to give your social security number over to five, six, seven, eight different participants for a single transaction, many of which you have no relationship with whatsoever. And then trust, and then trust them with that, that most sensitive data. Um, it's, it's a, it's a horrible design, but you know, given all of those infirmities, it, it sounds like it's still possible. It's feasible, right? It's, it's costly, expensive, invasive, but, but feasible. What about uh, with respect to self-hosted wallets, uh, the requirement to do backup withholding, right? Is that, is that, is that even possible? Um, depends on your services. So it, it's, it's not possible <clears throat> for someone to reach into your wallet. Exactly. And pull out tokens, right? If they, if that is possible, it is not an unhosted wallet. Exactly. Um, to the extent you're using a service that relies on smart contract functionality, you could theoretically have a mechanism where um, a contract withholds a certain amount of what's returned to you. Uh, the complexity of that, I can only imagine, will shatter your brain the chances that there is like infirmity or vulnerability with that mechanism leads uh, that would lead to catastrophic consequences, at, at least on a transaction by transaction basis, risk that it's very high. And it doesn't even address another administrative problem, which is if you did that, you'd be collecting um, crypto in a wallet that, um, is belongs to the IRS. So a, a software company that probably chooses not to be custodial is now having to be responsible for tokens that belong to the IRS. Let's just say for the sake of argument that you outsource that to an actual legitimate custodian, regulated custodian who um, complies with all of the burdensome regulations um, that apply to custodians. Let's say let's say you take care of that problem by spending money to do that. You then have the problem of having a big bag of all sorts of tokens that you then have to get to the IRS. Do they want a big bag of ether and um, altcoins and meme coins and all that stuff? Probably not. They probably want dollars. So what are you supposed to do? Are you supposed to sell those and move them into cash immediately? Who pays for the fees of that? Where does the cash sit? If there's been gain or loss since you received the token, what are you supposed to do about that? So the complexity here starts to spiral out of control. None of it's treated in the proposed rule. I'm not necessarily blaming them for that because how could they even think about these issues? Um, but we, we point this all out and others have simply to further illustrate the parade of horribles that they are inviting into town if they continue down the path of doing more than what Congress authorized them to do. And I trust there are plenty of people in Treasury and IRS who see that right now. And the question is, um, you know, will, will the powers that be let them do the sensible thing or will uh, they force them to do the unreasonable thing? 
Well, we will, we will definitely come back to that, that question in a little bit, but uh, right now I'd like to zoom out a little bit um, and, and go to Marissa. Um, you know, we've talked about some of the specific problems, uh, but you know, what, is, what do you think is the overall impact for crypto uh, in the US uh, if, if the rule is adopted as proposed or, or, or very nearly as proposed? Yeah, I mean, I think one projects will actually will have to either fundamentally change the nature of their business, as we've talked about, you know, as applied to like the backup withholding instance, like that wouldn't be an unhosted wallet, there would be a fundamental change to what that product would be. Um, and as applied to the whole DeFi stack, it would essentially have to become centralized in order to comply. So either that or projects will move overseas or shut down if, uh, you know, they were so reliant on U.S. customers that moving overseas wouldn't be feasible. So the impact is huge. I think as applied to the centralized entities, the compliance burden is obviously, you know, really, really large. And we advocate in our letter that there should be more time. Uh, to build these systems because it, it would basically be building everything from scratch. So there, you know, could be a shifting of the costs, like in, in to back to the customer to outweigh the cost of compliance. Um, but we'll see if that happens. But really, really, the the, the drastic existential impact is to DeFi. You know, you mentioned, uh, you know, one of the possible outcomes is that, uh, you know, is a, is a company's U.S., you know, crypto companies might, uh, you know, seek to move overseas to, you know, to avoid, um, you know, some of these problems. Um, you know, but Bill, is that, is that, uh, you know, is that the silver bullet? Is, is there a get out of jail free card? Um, you know, it, it seems to me that the, uh, you know, the definition of broker includes both, uh, you know, U.S. and foreign firms. Uh, it's true. I mean, you just have to melon scoop out the United States from your offerings, which is very hard to do. Um, and I'm sure nothing that um, I'm sure there would be uh, regulators would have the ability to criticize any compliance measures to sort of carve out um, persons who are subject to IRS taxation from from your operations. Um, and, you know, that shouldn't be the decision that this rule puts forward. This is an administrative rule about broker reporting that doesn't purport to substantively cleave the blockchain ecosystem into two halves, everywhere else in the world, and then the United States, where you're not allowed to do anything. I actually don't think that's what they mean to do. Um, whether, whether they care at all about the collateral consequences is to be seen. I think there are probably plenty of people who do, but um, it, it's it's going to be you know MetaMask. We could move operations overseas and only serve foreign persons, but we couldn't serve U.S. persons. If we stayed in the United States and we didn't want to subject foreign persons to the burdens of having to give us all sorts of information to prove that they're foreign, we could we would be forced to not service them and we would only service us persons um who'd be subject to a w9 it's a catch 22 either way um and uh it it is us having to cope with the fact that irs and treasury are doing things they're not legally permitted to do by expanding the rule like this so it's fundamentally improper it's unworkable and um 
I, frankly, I think of, of what we should be doing is also talking to Congress about it. And I plan to do that. Um, and I think that uh, people out there in crypto land should uh, rightfully sound an alarm that they're not particularly pleased with a rulemaking like this. And then they have an opportunity to do that in a lot of ways, even though the comment period's over. And then there's the courts, right? So if the rule does get passed in its current form, there are some very compelling legal arguments that we could make in the courts. Um, I think like very strong arguments, as Bill alluded to with the statutory authority arguments. This was going to be my next question anyway, um, you know, for you, which is, uh, you know, are there are there, you know, constitutional concerns here and and you know what you know what are some of the you know the best legal arguments constitutional or, or otherwise um you know that that affected parties could, you know can make once the rule goes final yeah for sure i think there are arguments under the first amendment the fourth amendment and the fifth amendment so under the first amendment it would be a free speech argument um as to the rights of software developers to uh, write code um, rather than be compelled to write code in a certain way. And then under, under the Fourth Amendment, it's a privacy concern. So as we've talked about, a ton of personal information would have to be collected, addresses, social security numbers. And then not only that, wallet addresses would have to be reported and be connected to a person's name and social security number, et cetera. So obviously, we know that the blockchain is public and it lists wallet addresses, you know, tied to specific transactions. So imagine if you knew the identity of who those wallet addresses belong to, you essentially could see someone's entire transaction history, um, <clears throat> which is a huge invasion of privacy and not narrowly tailored to the goals of the IRS to achieve tax compliance. Um, and then I think there's a Fifth Amendment argument. I think that participants in the ecosystem don't have fair notice that they have to comply, given how vague the language is. It's just very ambiguous. So I think the, those are the three main constitutional arguments. But, you know, I'm always open to hearing others, too. <laughs> <laughs> um, are, there, are there any uh, uh, you know, Administrative Procedures Act uh, uh, concerns here as well? Yeah, definitely. I think one big one is that they, in the proposal, they do not adequately weigh the costs and the benefits. Um, for instance, they don't even talk about the potential cost of like excluding DeFi uh, in the United States. And that's a huge cost, having projects shut down um, or fundamentally change the nature of their project. So that's one instance. And then the statutory authority arguments and the constitutional arguments also play a role in the APA. Like an agency can't uh, issue a rule that violates the Constitution. That would also be an APA violation. I mean, I, so on the APA, on the, um, the APA argument about failing to adequately assess or analyze costs and benefits, I think a big policy point, I don't view the constitutional arguments as at the end of the day, what fixes this. I think there's like some statutory interpretation, legal arguments, which are a big problem. And I think the policy is a big problem too. There are practical considerations here. The fact that based on their own math, 98% of the affected brokers 
Um, and I, I assume this is a low figure because they don't really understand the full world of the brokers that they're that they're deeming now as Creating. brokers. Ninety eight percent of them are considered small businesses. Um, and small businesses actually has a very high cap on it, something like forty million in yearly revenue, which for a tech company is like you're rich. Um, like for for a small developer group, that's that's it qualifies because they're they're running their software as a trader business. They're not just doing it for as a hobby or political expression or anything. They're actually trying to run a business with it. Most of them are very small. And I don't understand how all of them aren't wiped out by this because they could, couldn't possibly comply um, in, a, in, a, in a rational, feasible, from a finance finances perspective way. And because so many of the affected entities are small businesses, this gives um, the Small Business Administration, which is another agency in the federal government, some, uh, the opportunity to have something to say here. I don't know precisely <laughs> what the process is around that or how influential what they have to say may be to the determination, but it's not nothing. And I, you know, I'm going to turn my attention to the SBA and what we can do there. I'm going to strongly encourage Blockchain Association to as well. Yeah, I think a there's thought. a very important lesson here about uh, and, and message here about the the absolutely um, pre-Cambrian devastation to this ecosystem that we could experience um, with the with the smallest, most fragile projects, which is precisely the type of entity the SBA was created to champion. Um, and, and we should be looking at ideas like that and others to try to get the rest of the same world on the same policy footing with respect to how overboard this law is. All right, uh, Marissa, procedurally, uh, you know, where, you know, where are we? The, 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 the common period is closed. Uh, you mentioned you testified uh, in, in a hearing recently, sort of what, you know, what happens next and, and what does the timeline look like, um, you know, from here to, uh, you know, to a, to a final rule? Seth, I wish I had the answers. <laughs> Agencies, like, there's no timeline, really. I mean, they have to get through about 125,000 comment letters. So that's obviously, you know, will take a, a ton of time. What I think will happen, and this is purely a prediction, so this is not based in any sort of, like, you know, evidence that a reliable source has taught me or told me, but I think they might reopen the comment period at some point, maybe in six months, eight months, similar to what they did, what the SEC did with the ATS rule. Um, I think there have been so many concerns raised in this comment period that will raise more questions for them, similar to what I heard at the hearing. There were questions about decentralization, NFTs. Um, I think they'll ask questions about stable coins too, and probably wallets as well. So I think that they would reopen the comment period, which would basically allow us to write yet another letter uh, before the proposal is finalized. They could finalize it in its current form and issue a you know, release that explains how they address the concerns raised in the comment letters. I don't think that would happen before 
I don't know, eight months at the absolute soonest, but probably longer given how long it took them to wrote the, write the original release. The other option is nothing happens. Like they could just sit on this and it never gets finalized, um, which has happened in the, in the past with past uh, regulations. So I don't know if any of you guys have other perspectives on I mean, what especially will happen, if, but I'd be shocked if they get to a final rule in the next you know, six to nine months. And if, if they do, if they do, it's sub- substantially flawed and they're probably just um, numerous grounds to challenge it. Again, how successful that will all be will be based on the nature of those challenges. But there's a world where this was the finish line, getting a rule proposed and uh, it satisfies the the most strident crypto critics who really wanted to push treasury to this direction while taxes are important it's not the most critical issue for them so rather than just handle this swarm this beehive anymore um they move on to other things and the the worker bees to mix metaphors um continue working on it but it doesn't really go anywhere and then it's either a second biden term thing it's a first-term Democratic thing or a first-term Republican thing. If it's a first-term Republican issue, I bet you they scrap it or issue a new, a revised NPRM, which substantially draws it back. So there's a there's a political timing to all this as well. Yeah, and just to add to that, I think there's also a timing that they've set themselves right. We know they're going to phase in these requirements in 25, 26, 27. Like if they don't give companies enough time, users enough time to fully able to understand and incorporate the final rule, we're back into the situation we were just talking about uh, where no one can actually comply because it's too soon, no one can do withholding. They actually backdate some of the current rule to 2023, so start this year, and they say you've got to go back and you've got to do cost basis, which is understanding the initial price at which you purchased your, your coins for. And they say, you've got to go back and make sure you're doing it from 2023. So really, what they almost want some companies to do is invent a bit of a, you know, a, bit of a time looking back and go back and get that information. Um, but unfortunately, for those who don't have access to a time machine or you know, haven't quite invented it yet, um, that's something they have to address in the final rule. And we're going to run into the exact same issue, if they, even if they finalize it you know, optimistically, uh, what we're saying, nine months. They're going to run into that same issue. So I can see a delay. I think the IRS coming out and telling you, uh, we think it's, you know, we think it's a low estimation, but telling you about 8 billion, that sort of is, is opening up the ground, slightly rolling its back, slightly kind of pushing it over, doing some more work and saying their own technology won't be ready for, you know, one to two years is also giving you a sense of where Thailand might go. Um, but it's important to stay on top of this. I think that, you know, Bill's already mentioned uh, Congress's role here. Um, I was pleased to see that Chairman McHenry from the House Financial Services Committee came out and wrote a bipartisan letter already, a prominent letter. Like it, we know from our conversations with him and others on that on, on that committee, they are as concerned and have thought about introducing you know edits to the broker rule. Um, so I think it's also it, it tells me that in that time period, it's not just sort of waiting; it's an active kind of chance for not only the companies but also the wider community to go out and be engaging their Congress people, engaging their engaging those reps that they need to talk to. And making sure they understand what are the issues, understanding it's important to everyday Americans, it's important for them to be used, be able to have the ability to you know, self-custody at, at a specific level, but also, frankly, um, use their coins in a way that is safe, accessible. And, and as people here have said, kind of within the US. So it's a really opportunity for, for us not to pause, but to push forward our, to push forward our activity, 
push forward education and I, I know folks all folks in this call will be will be working with their working with their reps and working with the uh, kind of agencies to make sure they're hearing loud and clear you know that those issues that we're raising today yeah a lot of a lot of great points will I, you know I think it's, uh, especially the point you raised about uh, you know retroactive effectiveness uh, uh, the courts generally are pretty uh, uh, you know, don't are, are, are very wary of of laws and rules that are retroactively effective because of the constitutional requirement that that the people affected have fair notice. Right? Fair notice means you have to know what's required before you do something. And and this rule, you know, even if it doesn't go into effect until twenty twenty five or twenty twenty six, is requiring uh, retroactive effectiveness to January one, twenty twenty three, before the rule was even proposed. Uh, so there's no way that someone could have a fair notice, at least with respect to most of the transactions this year. Um, you know, but another point, uh, you know, I, 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 with a great panel, sometimes you you uh, preemptively answer uh, my next question. And so one of them was going to be, uh, you know, so what, you know, are there, you know, you know, is it too late or are there ways to win here? And I think you've already touched on the three that I had in mind, uh, which is through the courts, uh, Marissa, which you raised. Um through the the electoral process bill, which you raised, um, and, and then through Congress, uh, you know, will which you raised. Uh, I think all three of those avenues provide opportunities to, uh, you know, substantially improve um, or remove uh, this this rule proposal, uh, depending on how they go. You know, even if Treasury is dead set on 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 plowing forward, uh, you know, with the with the rule uh, as as they proposed it. Last question. And then I'll let everyone, uh, uh, you know, start traveling for for, for Thanksgiving. Um, so, uh, you know, a ledger we have, uh, uh, you know, as a French company, we have a, 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 a significant focus on what happens in Europe, uh, and we have a lot of uh, European customers, and um, you know that that uh, you know maybe less concerned with our topic of the day, which was the the IRS uh, broker rule. But there is something in the EU that is quite similar. Uh, it's called DAC 8 or Directive on Administrative Cooperation 8. And it's also a tax uh, reporting regulation that would apply uh, in the EU. Um, will and or Bill, um, uh, you, uh, can, you, can you speak to, to DAC 8 and in particular sort of the key similarities and differences between uh, sort of the European version of this and uh, the, the IRS broker rule that we spent so much time uh, talking about today? Yeah, I'm happy to do the self-host of all that specific aspects. And, and, the, and the good news is I think decade is, is largely more positive than the tax uh, tax reporting regs over here. It's rare, but I would agree with that. It's rare, it's rare. It's, but it, it is, it is uh, which I think speaks partly just how bad the reporting regs are in the US. Um, but I think one of the reasons why it does that is essentially it acknowledges the role of self-hosted wallets. And it, that's because it draws on the OECD's wider crypto asset reporting framework, um, which is sort of the basis that a lot of uh, countries are using to, to implement their kind of relevant uh, crypto asset tax reporting. Um, and so one of the things it does is it says and acknowledges uh, that self-hosted wallets are not the appropriate place to be doing tax reporting because it's the, it's the entities or individuals, and this is what it says, that as a business provides services effectuating exchange transactions uh, for and on behalf of customers. So it acknowledges it's not self-hosted wallets are doing that and they're carved out. Um, and, you know, it's a it's good start. Uh, it's a directive, so it needs to be implemented on a national level. And there is kind of one area which we're definitely looking at. And we want to make sure that when it's being implemented, uh, national authorities are very clear on this. 
Um, currently, I think some people might be familiar with the term uh, crypto asset service provider. Uh, that's how the uh, markets in crypto regulation or, or assets, uh, Mika, the kind of main rules for the EU regulation, uh, kind of defines uh, the main businesses in the crypto world, essentially, and who's who's responsible for most of the regulations. Um, but DACA adds uh, this kind of term called a crypto asset operator. Uh, and CASP is great because it, it clearly defines what is in and what is out. Um, we're slightly concerned about this crypto asset operator phrase. It could be unclear. It's not quite as bad as digital asset middlemen. Uh, it's not quite doing what the tax point regs are doing here. But it's something that we're definitely being encouraged national entities in the EU to like really be clear on when they're implementing decade to really define who is in scope and who is out of scope. And hopefully not to be taking on, you know, some of the views that the IRS has taken on here. So it's definitely a good start. And um, DACA was kind of very clear. It was very consultative, took a long time. And now it's over to national authorities to do the implementation. So we're watching. It's a good start. Still a place to go. Um, but we're, we're more hopeful on that for self-hosted wallets than we, uh, we are for the IRS. As I think an hour of us chatting on this podcast is, is kind of outlined in a, a lot of detail. The only thing I'd add is... Um... Dock eight, we I think gets it wrong on staking, onto the nature of staking services, and um, if you're a staking service provider, yeah, uh, it appears that the, the overarching legislation pulls you into the reporting regime, and they don't make a, the important distinction between. DeFi liquidity provision and locking tokens to generate yield type of staking, which really isn't protocol staking and protocol staking. If that's true, then um, how Doc8 applies to software developers offering staking services is also in question. So, so that's something going forward we're going to be paying attention to. Yeah, and and to the point Will made, there you know there is within some you know, there, there's some wiggle room uh, in how these terms get defined at the national level because it is a directive. And so each of the 27 EU member states has to individually uh, enact DAC8 in, in, into their national law, which means it has to go through their national legislative process, uh, you know, which, you know, it can't sort of vary directly, um, you know, from, you know, from DAC8, but there is some latitude to define terms certain ways. And I think both of these points that you raised, um, sort of the nature of, you know, what is a crypto asset operator and how does it differ from a CASP, uh, as well as, you know, you know, the, the treatment of different types of staking providers, uh, you know, I think is, is sort of within the, the margin of error, uh, that, that could be corrected, um, you know, by, by member states through their legislative process. But the time to be doing that is now. Um, and, you know, so I, I made a number of trips to Brussels, um, particularly to, to advocate for, for greater clarity on this cast versus operator point um, uh, to no avail, unfortunately. Uh, I was told repeatedly that, that uh, the, you know, that the, the parliament couldn't vary from the text that came out of the OECD. And I said, well, isn't that, you're the parliament. <laughs> what is your point if you just take things that are dictated by bureaucracies? Um, but in any case, uh, the, the, the national uh, legislatures and parliaments do have an opportunity to, to, to add some clarity to some of these definitions. Uh, and, and we should all, on, on, on this uh, podcast, we should all be having those conversations uh, in, in 2024.
All right. Well, I think that's a wrap. Um, thanks, uh, thanks to everyone for offering your insights. I think it's, uh, I think it's been tremendous. I learned things, uh, and, and so I think it'll be tremendously helpful for, uh, you know, for our audience and, uh, anybody that cares about this issue, which should be everybody, because, uh, it's going to be at the end of the day, your private personal information, um, that's at stake here. Um, so, uh, thanks, uh, you know, thanks to the panelists for joining, uh, thanks to the audience for watching and, uh, we'll see you next time. This content is provided for informational purposes only and is the sole expression of our opinion and should not be relied upon as legal, business, investment, or tax advice. Do your own research. Any loss or profit is your sole responsibility. Stay safe.